everyone. It's your host here, Marcel. Last week, we hosted Lisa McClymont and talked about the intersection of art and public health and what that looks like in her work. If that sounds creative and informative, you should check out Lisa's works and also check out her interview in chapter three. So over the past couple of episodes, we've discussed public health and health equity from a number of different cross-sections. And a theme that I've noticed that's come up a lot is this idea of intentionality. And specifically, intentionality as it pertains to centering marginalized groups in our language, activism, and overall work. So I wanted to dedicate the next few chapters to activism and centering specific groups of individuals to exemplify what intentionality can look like. So to start with this mini-series, I'll begin with a conversation I had with Taniqua Hines, the Women's Health Coordinator at Fenway Health, where we talked about the healthcare needs prominent among queer women specifically. So sit back, enjoy, and I'll see you all at the end of the episode. Welcome to Defining Equity, a show meant to center and celebrate those living at the margins. Today, we're going to be having a conversation about queer women and health disparities. Oftentimes, when discussing LGBTQ health disparities, queer women are often casted to the side in favor of discussions of disparities that most affect cisgender queer men, particularly white men. So today, to combat that, we are joined by Taniqua Hines, the Women's Health Coordinator at Fenway Health, an organization whose mission it is to enhance the health of the LGBTQ community through increasing access to high-quality healthcare, education, research, and advocacy. Taniqua's role combines advocacy, solidarity, and creativity in a way that I'm super excited to dive into. <laughs> so without further ado, Taniqua, everyone, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for <laughs> blessing the show. I can't wait to get started and have this conversation with you. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So just before we jump into all of that, before we get into the nitty gritty of health disparities, like let's talk about like a little bit more about you. So would you mind just like telling folks a little bit more about who you are in terms of like small information, like where you're from, where you live, your age, like small stuff like that? Yeah, no problem. So yeah, like you mentioned, my name is Tinko Hines, very unique name. Um, I identify as 23-year-old black bisexual woman currently living in Boston. Mm-hmm. I work as the Women's Health Program Coordinator at Family Health. Um, and as you mentioned, we're a community health center that specializes in LGBTQ health. Mm-hmm. But how did I get here? You know, very interesting uh, journey. So I always like to start with my parents. So my parents immigrated to the United States from Jamaica. So that's kind of where my heritage comes from. That's where my foundation is. And I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of like my little beginnings. I know you'll you'll ask me a little bit more about that. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, <laughs> <laughs> you're good. You are good. Yeah. So, like, I mean, you already kind of mentioned like parents and everything. Would you mind telling mm-hmm. us a bit more about your childhood? Like, you know, like who you were as a kid. Like, yeah. Telling us a little bit about like growing up in Connecticut, what your family was like, stuff like that. Yeah, no problem. So yeah, so as a kid, it's actually really interesting when I think about it, and whenever I talk specifically to my mom, <laughs> because she's like, and I know that I was like a very shy child, which is really interesting because now that I do community work, I really love talking to people and networking, so it's a really big shift from who mm-hmm. I was as a kid, but I would still say, you know, I have a shy, a shy side, mm-hmm. a somewhat shy side, but when I'm within the community, I would say like that's definitely a point where I thrive, so I really like that. And then in terms of, you know, my family and like how I grew up, so I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, as I mentioned before, and I was raised by Jamaican immigrant parents mm-hmm. and kind of them being from Jamaica and being a place that, you know, they didn't have much. Mm-hmm. I was also very sheltered because they wanted to make sure that, 
you know, I had everything that I needed and that I wouldn't have to worry about anything going on in the city. Right. Yeah. So they were very determined for me to be like a college graduate, for me to take this traditional route. And it was kind of like a source of pride for my family. Interesting. Yeah. But I would say what was difficult with that is the conservative culture within Jamaican culture. I mean, I think different cultures have their own conservativeness that goes on, but it manifests itself in different ways, depending on like what culture you're from. So the homophobia and kind of sexism within Jamaican culture is very distinct and very different and kind of manifests itself in different ways. So being sheltered in a way around that because I was a woman, mm. I would say that's, that's my upbringing. Got you. Did you have any particular hobbies that you enjoyed uh, as a child? Well, I also find that I also find that very interesting because what do you mean by hobbies? Like, what, <laughs> like, what does hobbies really mean? So I would say, you know, because I was sheltered, didn't really have a lot of hobbies per se. Mm-hmm. But I said I would say like my best friend was the television set. Like I love TV. I still to this day very much love TV. I would say it was basically like attached to my hip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I would say it's probably, like, one of the reasons why I love pop culture today. Because it's just, like, and just, like, television and shows in general. It's just, like, a great way to kind of just escape, you know, everyday life. Like, mm-hmm. when you can't, you know, deal with the stresses going outside, whether it's because of just oppressive stuff or just everyday things, you know. Mm-hmm. Being able to kind of use TV and shows as a way to escape that. It was kind of, like, my mode of, like, getting out of my own reality. Got you. What was your favorite show? As a kid? Mm-hmm. Oh my god, what was my favorite show? I would say as, as a teenager, because I can remember this. As a teenager, it was Degrassi because. Oh my god, <laughs> I loved Degrassi. <laughs> because it was just like this never ending soap opera, and it just talked about so many issues that were so taboo growing up. Well, especially in like a Jamaican household, like, you know, sex, pregnancy, like abortion. And I recently found out that their abortion episode was blocked in the US for some time because it wasn't really talked about. So kind of that show, like, just opening my eyes to many things. It might have been one of the first queer scenes, like, I've seen. So, like, like, that was, I guess, one of my first queer representations on TV. So, yeah, it was really, I really liked Scratchy as a kid. I would, like, sneak off and watch it because I knew I didn't have to. I couldn't watch it. <laughs> oh, my God. I love that so much. <laughs> cool. Well, before we dive in, you know, I just want to ask one more quick icebreaker question. So the way I like to do this usually is, you know, I have three questions that folks can choose from. So you can choose to answer just one of them, all three of them, one, and just really elaborate on it, whatever makes you feel the most like mm-hmm. you. So of the three questions, the first one is, what's your favorite form of social media? I know you talked about your favorite show growing up, but the second question is, what's your current favorite mm-hmm. TV show or genre? And what's your favorite pop culture moment right now? So mm-hmm. those are the three questions. <laughs> Go. Okay, awesome. I think I'll just answer all three because I like all of them. So what's my favorite form of media? So I would, I couldn't pick one, so I chose two. So I would say Instagram and Twitter. Specifically, I don't know, I like different forms because you can show different sides of yourself. Mm-hmm. On social media, so like on Instagram, like that's definitely like my <laughs> kind of like narcissistic side I would say mm-hmm. but I don't know it's like I would say like I've kind of developed it in a way that I've been like very like body positive about myself and mm-hmm. also embracing my own fluidity in terms of fashion mm-hmm. I would say I like to dress like femme and dapper and sometimes like combine both so I like Instagram as a way to put that on display and show my own personality and then watch people like open up and show their own too so mm-hmm. And then Twitter also kind of as a social activist platform in a way of like getting news as well as just networking with 
people. I think Twitter is so underrated. And I just love how black folks have just turned it into this this culture, like just really like a culture. Right. Like, <laughs> I feel like we were like itching for Twitter before it came out. Like we knew it was coming. Right. But <laughs> we just like prepared. We were just yeah. like, how, we just got to make sure when it's on the map, like we are out here. Yeah, we, were, <laughs> we were creating memes before Twitter. People just didn't know it. Oh my God, that's so <laughs> real. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, we had memes in our everyday lives. Twitter just gave us a way to create it, you know. Basically. <laughs> um, what's my favorite TV show or genre? Mm-hmm. Right now, like, reality show, like, hands down. Um, my guilty pleasure is, like, love and hip-hop, specifically Atlanta. Oh, <laughs> my God, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just... What were you like? Do you watch the show? Like, what do you? Yeah, so I always, so I, I love Love and Hip Hop Atlanta, and it's funny <laughs> because like people kind of get into it with me and say, oh, like Love and Hip Hop New York is like the best one, and I'm like, where, when? But also, it's just like I'm from Atlanta, so maybe that's just like my own personal bias. <laughs> showing so like it's kind of nice seeing like places that i recognize in different neighborhoods and stuff but also the drama is way juicier on atlanta exactly. than other seasons i must say exactly yeah no there's i don't know there's just like something about like new york just feels like replayed but atlanta is like ooh, i'm on the edge of my seat right <laughs> and like hollywood is like hollywood's cute too but it's just it's just a different type <laughs> of drama you know it's like it's not as like in your face like it's not mm-hmm. as like real um it just mm-hmm. feels like a little bit more rehearsed but yeah i agree i agree yeah and i I like what you said you know hollywood is like it's like oh it's cute but atlanta mm. right <laughs> and then the last one what's my favorite pop culture moment right now yes um to be honest like anything drake like i just i i'm a huge fan of drake if I met him, I don't know, I'd probably cry or whatever. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> but um, I would say, like, you know, just him, like, his lyrics, relationships, drama, everything. Mm-hmm. I um, I don't know if you and others listening will have watched Insecure, but when they made that reference, Issa Rae was sitting in the car with someone, and mm-hmm. um, the dude made a reference. So she was like, yeah, I love Drake. And he was like, yeah, all college girls love Drake. And oh, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> And she was like, he just gets us. And I was like, exactly. I was just like, yes, yes. I was nodding my head. Yes. Oh, my God. That is so, I actually, I totally remember that scene. And it's just, <laughs> that's so funny. I'm, I'm curious, like, does that come a little bit from your Degrassi days growing up? Or is it like a totally just like, totally unrelated? <laughs> I mean, I would say, yeah, because it's like, when, well, the first time I heard Drake, I didn't know that it was Aubrey from Degrassi. But then when I found out, I was like, oh, I just feel so connected with him. Right. I was here from when he was on Degrassi, from when people called him wheelchair Jimmy. Like, mm-hmm. like I was here. <laughs> right, like you were literally day one. Like. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nico, thank you so much for sharing all of those experiences and everything. You know, part of the show, Defining Equity, I like to talk about 
you know, like activism and like mobilization as it relates to different groups of people. But also I think mm-hmm. half of what makes this work so interesting is the narrative behind what kind of gets people to the work, like who they are outside mm-hmm. of it, who they were before it, etc. So like, I really do appreciate you sharing all of those experiences. So now to jump in, I'd love to hear more about your work. But to kind of start off, I think it might be helpful to provide some context for the listeners. So like I mentioned a little bit earlier, oftentimes when we're talking about LGBTQ health disparities, we often focus on disparities as it relates to cisgender queer men. So I'm just curious, like what specific health disparities exist among queer women? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I think it's a really great question, especially thinking about it now during Pride Month. Tomorrow will be June. <laughs> mm-hmm. Think about it during Pride Month, especially when Pride festivities, especially focus around you know white cisgender gay men, and thinking about the origins of Pride as a political movement, as a riot started by trans women of color, by bi folks, by people of color, the most marginalized of the communities who tend to be on the forefront of all movements, and including you know the LGBT movement. However, you know have been erased time since and currently as pride festivities and healthcare when it focuses on the LGBT community usually focuses just on the G and just on gay men. Mm. So thinking more about how can we center when we talk about healthcare and health access, we can center it on queer women. And also when we think about queer women, like the whole queer community, it's also very diverse. Mm. So thinking about lesbian women, bi women, trans women as well as pansexual folks, non binary folks. And also we need to consider other intersecting identities such as race, disability, immigrant status and age and how that can also affect folks access to to health care. And specifically, I think I'm going to take an approach that considers intersectionality as well as resilience. How I think of intersectionality, thinking of its origins from a black woman, she specifically used it to define the discrimination that black women face. It's not that black women are black or women. They're both. You can't you can't talk about the discrimination they face without recognizing that there are two forms of oppression that they face separately, but also that can intersect and happen at the same time. Mm-hmm. So recognizing that for LGBTQ folks, that can happen, you know, for sexual orientation as well as other identities that they face. And then when we think about how to respond to these health disparities, thinking about resilience, you know, the LGBT community goes through so much in order to try and cope with different environmental stressors that they face. And this is definitely very unfortunate, but it also, we also kind of form ways to become more resourceful and survive. And this is a form of resilience and how we look to our community for resources and to empower ourselves. So looking at resiliency as a form to flip oppression on its side and be like, you know what? We have survived. We have been trying to survive for so many years and we've been so resourceful. So thinking about intersectionality and resilience as these forms to respond to help. Mm-hmm. So uh, first, I'm going to dive into what health disparities lesbian and bisexual women face. And then I'm going to hone in more on bisexual women and biphobia, because I think that that's really important, and then talk about trans women as well. Mm-hmm. So when we think about LGBTQ folks, we need to think about the environmental stressors that they face. So thinking about how, you know, like we're socialized into environments, specifically from the home to school, to the workplace, if people enter the workplace, or just into everyday interactions. There are certain norms that society sets us up to believe that, you know, we live in this gender binary for only men and women and that folks only engage in straight or, you know, different sex relationships. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, sexuality and gender is very fluid. 
However, you know, norms don't expect us to react in such ways. So mm-hmm. lesbian, bi, woman, and, you know, women in general are, are reacting to these environmental stressors, whether in school or from bullying, whether in the workplace from discrimination or being paid less. So when we think about lesbian, bi, woman, they're more likely to have a higher body mass index. And what does this mean? So medically, it means being categorized as overweight and obese. And I think that this comes with a lot of weight to it, specifically the negative connotations. And how, you know, medically we tell people, oh, you need to be weight because, you know, you'll face X, Y, Z risk factors. But I think Mm -hmm. we need to approach it from a more body positive perspective and think about it not for the person to conform to society, but for the person to do it for themselves in their own environment. Mm -hmm. Thinking about exercise as a way to empower themselves as a way to relieve environmental and mental stressors. The way that, you know, exercise releases endorphins as a way to reward yourself. And thinking about everybody is different. Everybody does not have to be the same. So, you know, approaching it from this perspective, I think, is really great. Mm. In terms of other factors that uh, lesbian bi women face, you know, how they cope with their environmental stressors can be through substance use as well as smoking. And they tend to use substances and smoke more to their heterosexual counterparts. Mm. Bi women are more likely to smoke the highest in comparison to a lesbian and straight women. Mm. So seeing these as ways that our community has coped with it because of not only targeted adding from tobacco companies, but because society has continued to try and reinforce that they're not good enough, that their sexuality is something that shouldn't be accepted. Mm. And, you know, this is the internal dialogue that goes on. So then folks are also dealing with anxiety as well as depression. And so there's more instances of this as well as attempted suicide. And then when we think about how folks interact with others in their own relationships, lesbian women are just as likely as heterosexual men to face domestic violence. However, they're less likely to report. So thinking about how we define domestic violence as being physical, emotional, and financial abuse, but usually it's thought of only as a type of abuse that happens from a man to a woman and not thinking that it can happen vice versa or in same-sex relationships. This makes it difficult for lesbian women to report this. Mm-hmm. And as well as bi women are even more likely actually to face domestic violence mm-hmm. than their heterosexual and lesbian counterparts. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so these are just a couple of health factors that aren't considered. And a couple of things that I mentioned before, such as smoking, substance use, and a higher BMI also leads to you know higher risk of cancer, as mm-hmm. well as the lower screening rates of certain cancer screenings. So thinking about like pap tests, mammograms, and colonoscopies. So we need to think about, you know, like why aren't lesbian and bisexual women getting these? Is it because the medical system has continued to ask them, oh, so how is your boyfriend or your husband doing? Rather than opening the question, asking about their partner themselves. Right. Or, you know, they might not have a partner, you know, like opening the question to how about you define yourself rather than me define you based on norms that we've been taught. Right. That's real. And I know you said you were going to speak a little bit to the health disparity that trans women specifically face. Would you mind just like, mm-hmm. talking a little bit about that as well? Yeah, no problem. So, I mean, when we think about trans women, we need to think about how society views them and how they view themselves. So trans folks identifying with a different gender than assigned at birth and how the world sees that and how the world identifies that. And kind of due to this gender discrimination and due to transphobia as well as sexism, trans women face high rates of discrimination. And this is in form of housing, jobs, bullying within school, physical and sexual assault, as well as homelessness. So they face disproportionate rates of these compared to their cisgender counterparts. 
And when we say cisgender, that means folks who identify with the same gender assigned at birth. Mm-hmm. And when we think about barriers of care, thinking about how these challenges build up in terms of trying to access care. So, for example, if someone is facing, for trans women, you know, um, an employment rate, you know, twice as the general population, what's more important, getting a checkup or trying to find housing? So mm-hmm. thinking about this mode of survival that we put trans women in and how they react to it. So trans women are more likely to engage in sex work in order to relieve themselves from these economic challenges. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, this can also put them at risk for um, more STDs. This can also put them at risk for assault as well. And then we also need to talk about rates on top of that. So thinking about Latino and Black trans women facing disproportionate rates of HIV diagnosis and also disproportionate rates of murders to talk about, you know, Black Lives Matter also talking about trans women and including them in the narrative as well. Mm, got you. Taniqua, thank you so much for providing that context and illuminating the specific health disparities that queer and trans women experience. So I'm just curious, like, tell us a little bit about your role at Fenway Health. Like, describe the work that you do. Yeah. So I think it's very interesting because I think with the nonprofit, it's interesting in that you get multiple roles. <laughs> right. Um, and can be great in terms of giving you a wide variety of skills. So specifically what I do as a women's health program coordinator is I provide support in terms of admin work, health education, research and outreach. Mm-hmm. So in terms of administrative work, I help to bring in different folks from the community as well as the medical professionals to provide training as well as context for our team. Mm-hmm. So I'll bring in medical folks who can talk different types of medical jargon, whether it's about lactation, menopause, mammograms, to kind of keep our women's health team up to date on you know, these medical standards. But I'll also try to change it up a bit and bring in community members so that they can bring in context as to what our patient population is facing, like what is current social economic factors that they face that affects their access to care. Mm-hmm. So, for example, this summer we have a couple of speakers coming up talking about why folks access to healthcare as well as Muslim women and how they access healthcare as well. Mm-hmm. So thinking about how these kind of intersectional identities affects folks' health disparities and their access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. Another another one of my hats that I wear is that I help in terms of health education, mm-hmm. specifically for tobacco cessation. So LGBTQ folks are more likely to smoke and more likely to use tobacco, mm-hmm. not only to kind of deal with environmental stresses, but also because tobacco companies have historically targeted LGBTQ communities as well as other communities. Mm-hmm. It's actually really interesting how they have and some of the records of them doing this is actually public and them being outright in their emails of saying, you know, we are targeting people who are gay because we know that they will smoke more due to the oppression that they face. Wow. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. And also not only for LGBTQ folks, but faculty companies have also targeted the African-American community as well, which is why these two marginalized communities experience more smoking rates than others, too. Mm-hmm. The situation that we have set up for the program is to provide this 45-minute to hour one-on-one session talking to the person about why have they come today. So when people come, they've already made the step to want to be in the program. So understand what is their tobacco use, like what does it mean for them? And realistically, what does quitting mean to them? So what are the steps between you using tobacco now and quitting later? And, you know, this doesn't have to mean you have to quit tomorrow, but it means putting quit plan in place of taking small steps mm-hmm. and being able to eventually reach that goal. So it's not just a one-on-one time thing. We also continue to meet with them, too. Got to. Cool. 
Yeah, so that's our tobacco cessation program. And then the other two things I do is research and outreach. So I help to coordinate different research efforts. We actually have a department called the Family Institute that helps you coordinate research. Specifically, some of the topics I work on include intimate partner violence, contraception, thinking about how LGBTQ folks use contraception, as well as HPV. And then there's outreach. So specifically for the Women's Health Program, we do the Audrey Board Cancer Awareness Brunch every single year. So this is specifically targeted towards women of color who are affected by cancer. And on top of that, I also do just outreach to the general community. So we have a grant that allows us to promote a holistic health for queer women. So in the past, we've used it to do film screenings. So we recently had one on a movie called Her Story. So that kind of talked about the history of the feminist movement within Boston. And this was a great intergenerational event. It brought older folks, younger folks, and it was a great dialogue about what that meant and how does that affect our current and past queer feminist movement. Mm-hmm. We also have coming up a Queer Women's Empowerment Series. So this is a workshop series with different organizations, basically giving tools regarding sexual health, healthy relationships, as well as resiliency. So thinking about um, using storytelling and narrative telling as resilience. Other programs we've done are Smoke the Word, Yoga Series, but these are just ways to involve the community and give them tools and empowerment. Mm-hmm. Got you, got you. How did, like, I'm curious, what was the training process like to doing all of these things? Because you, <laughs> you literally do everything. So, like, um, that's. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that is a great question. I was actually thinking about this the other day. So, I didn't have a training process. This happens a lot in entry level and nonprofit positions. So, for anyone who wants to do something similar, I would say, you know, be a self starter. I think it's really important you see that, you know, you want to help marginalized communities. I think it's really important to reach out to community organizations that are already doing that work mm. because you don't want to duplicate work, work that's already been done. And also, it's just a great way to network. Right. So coming into this position, I actually, and, I, and sometimes I'm like, I think to myself, why did they hire me? <laughs> but then uh, coming into this position, I, I had to do a lot of networking and, you know, getting my own resources and understanding what the Boston LGBTQ scene and community organizing is like, because I didn't have any context before this. So, so there'll be some times where I was like, huh, you know, I did have a big learning curve and I'm like, huh, why'd they hire me? And I was like, well, but I'm still doing a job. So, right. <laughs> so there's that. So I would say, yeah, I would say if anyone wants to get into similar types of work, I think being a self-study is like really important. Got you. That is real. Yeah, I can certainly relate to wearing a lot of hats and just just figuring it out along the way. Because, you know, there are even situations in which, you know, with a nonprofit, different grants will open up and it'll be for a position that like an organization's never quite done before. You know, there's a little bit of guidance, like as an organization, oftentimes everyone's trying to figure out how a certain role looks. So but it sounds like yours has been able to like coalesce very smoothly, which I'm super happy to hear. So just out of curiosity, you know, you talked a lot about your outreach efforts, your research efforts. You've spoken a lot to this notion of like intersectionality. So I'm just curious how you're able to ensure trans inclusivity specifically. Yeah, I think that that's really important, especially when you just think about the marginalization of folks and the discrimination and stigma that trans folks face and that they continue to face. I think like, you know, identifying specifically as a cis woman, like knowing when to check myself, I think is really important. You know, when I'm planning an event or outreach, kind of thinking about it, taking a step back and like, did I consider all the resources and what trans groups are doing same or similar work and who can I partner with so I don't duplicate the work that's already been done 
um, right. and making sure to include diverse voices at the table. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we had movie panel that we had was about queer feminism. And as I was planning the panel, um, I had like all four of the people set place. I was like, oh my gosh, it's so good. I'm mm-hmm. done. I advertised, all set. And then, you know, I kind of took a step back and I was like, you know, actually, if we're going to talk about queer feminism, we need trans person at the table. You know, we need to have trans folks present. We need to consider all diverse folks within this community because this community is very diverse. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having to take a step back and be like, you know, Tiki, you actually need to reach out to trans organizations and invite a trans panelist um, and provide that perspective as well. And also trans folks in the room so that this person is not taken as. I right. think, you know, taking a step back and checking yourself is very important. Mm-hmm. And then for the workshop series I have coming up, asking the facilitators, well, first of all, making sure that there's trans folks present in the room who can receive these resources, as well as make sure that there's trans facilitators as well. And then also talking to the facilitators and making sure that the language and the tools that they use are like trans and gender inclusive. Mm-hmm. I think not checking all the boxes, but checking yourself, I think, is important. Don't think because you have that one trans person, it's okay. Right. How are you creating a space that's trans? Hmm. Right. That is real, and I'm so I'm so glad you said that because I think oftentimes it's so funny how folks can do that. I feel like when people hear the term tokenization or like the idea of someone being a token, the go to is typically race and how they mm-hmm. think about that. But like that literally can happen at any yes. intersection of identities, <laughs> and so I think yes. it's so. In the, it's funny how like. You can sometimes find people of color, queer folks, et cetera, who will like tokenize trans individuals and like other types yeah. of people. And I'm just like, it, it's funny the lack of reflectiveness sometimes that can yeah. be revealed. So I really mm-hmm. do appreciate you kind of making sure that that notion is expressed and like talking about how like just having like a trans person at the table is not like, okay, we, we did our piece. It's like, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, like that's, that's cute. But like at the same time, you know, you really don't want to get into that lane of being like, oh, well, this person has like the trans experience. Like this is a person who is trans, but like they do mm-hmm. not represent the entire trans community. So exactly. super glad you mentioned that. I guess stepping back a little bit. In my work, I work a lot with health department staff. My organization, we're all about building multi-sectoral partnerships. So like mm-hmm. doing work with activists, with researchers, artists, etc. So especially for folks who might be researchers, activists, artists, health department people, whatever, who work specifically like in LGBTQ health, like in your opinion, how can we better center women in our efforts? And mm-hmm. when I say women, I mean like cis and trans women, yeah. bi and lesbian women, etc. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you kind of touched on it right there, talking about different community organizations. I think it's really important to partner with folks who are already doing work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, continuing to provide them with resources, especially if they're doing the work well, you know, they're already doing this work. So, like, why duplicate it? And I mm-hmm. think putting resources together is really important, especially resources that affirm LGBTQ folks and women. So I think collaboration one is really important. And I think being really intentional about the space that you create. So if you're trying to attract women to an event, like say that it's the space for men, you know, mm-hmm. don't be like, OK, we're going to have this picture here. Maybe we'll use things that we think are feminine. You know, I think being like really intentional about the space that you create is really important. Mm. And, you know, acknowledging if your language is not inclusive. So, you know, making sure that you have folks who are represented at the table, you know, not just a token person, but multiple folks who can, you know, see if that language is inclusive. So let's mm. say you want to attract women and non-binary folks, like explicitly like saying that I think mm. like is really important. So I think like being as specific as possible, but also being inclusive 
is really important. Right. And getting feedback from, you know, community organizations and collaborators who can tell you if said language is inclusive. Right. And I think just normalizing, you know, this cultural competency, because I think oftentimes we're like, okay, there's the LGBTQ organization and they've done all they've needed to do. Mm-hmm. But what about organizations that might not be explicitly LGBTQ or women-centered? Like, we need to normalize the issues that these organizations face and don't think that it's just something that an organization that specifically says that they serve these populations should do. Because mm-hmm. LGBTQ folks and women are accessing care everywhere, every different places. So we need to think about not just making it for these spaces that specify these populations, but also for all places in all spaces. Right. That is real. That's super real. And I'm curious, you know, it sounds like a lot of the work that you do really caters to this idea of health equity and just ensuring healthcare in a very intentional way. So I'm just curious, in the work that you do, what's your vision of health equity? One place that I need to work on is measuring effectiveness. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's like my strong point, but it's definitely a place that I need to work on. But I would say Health equity is ideally meeting someone where they're at. You know, a difficulty that I face and I think others face too is like location. Mm-hmm. Fenway Health is located in a very like, like there's luxury condos like next to Fenway. You know, like there's like mm-hmm. these different things next to Fenway that kind of make it inaccessible to folks. We can't currently control the, where it is right now. But mm-hmm. thinking about, so as a place that has these like luxury things around it, how can we make it more accessible to folks. So I think health equity is really about accessibility and really really about meeting folks where they're at. So if we have an event at Fenway, like what are we doing for the folks in, so talking about Boston, Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, these locations that might not have direct access to all these things, I think is really important to consider. Right. So I'm just kind of curious, what got you into this work and what keeps you motivated to keep doing it? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question, like thinking about where you came from and you know, how do you get there? How did I get here? Right. Um, so I think it was really interesting because I wasn't necessarily, I would say I was definitely attached to my Jamaican and Black culture, but in terms of understanding myself as a woman, specifically as a queer woman, like that didn't come up for me until I was in college. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to Wellesley College, which is a great place. And, you know, I recommend people to go there. Um, but it's a predominantly women's college outside of Boston. And it was just, for the most part, like a very liberal environment for me and I got to connect with black women who you know I didn't get to connect with in college because I went to a predominantly white institution so being around these black women and being like in this sisterhood was really important for me and bringing those bonds allowed me to understand uh, my black woman more and like what that meant for me what it meant for me to be a black woman and then specifically you know as a queer woman you know being in this predominantly female environment allowed me to be more open with myself and allow me to understand who I am a bit more. And Wellesley, in colleges in general, I guess, with their resources for LGBTQ folks and kind of as a way of being like more independent, you know, and away from home. I think college itself was a growing place for me that allowed me to be independent and on my own and explore my womanhood and my queerness. Tanika, you've shared a lot of really awesome information and like a lot of really amazing and definitely personal information about yourself. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm just curious, because I think similarly, like even looking at some of the work that I do, it's interesting doing work that is so like deeply personal, because obviously, mm-hmm. like, you know, there is so like this academic public health undertone to the work that you do. But at the same time, in essence, the work you're doing very much comes from your own personal experience and like your own understandings of identity and things like that. So I'm just curious, like, how do you how do you self care? Like, how do you, you know, step back when yeah. the work gets to be a lot and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that is difficult for me because I'm a person who I like to be engaged. Like, mm-hmm. so it's like really hard for me. And like, I like I said in the beginning, like you know, I used to be a shy child, but like now I'm very much engaged in the community and I like networking and just talking to folks and understanding what's going on in the community. So I'm a person who just likes to be plugged in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, you know, need to check in with, with myself more. But I would say it's definitely my self care is pop pop culture is just like it's just a way for me to escape this reality and mm-hmm. so i really like watching love and hip-hop <laughs> as i've previously mentioned so you know honestly any reality tv show that can kind of just like get me out of the reality that's currently happening so i can kind of you know zone in on someone else's reality and concentrate on that mm-hmm. i would say that that's kind of like my guilty pleasure yeah and sometimes sometimes i think when I've connected too much to people and I'm burnt out, I just like to disconnect. I will make sure to like take a weekend to myself and just order in some takeout or something like. Mm. <laughs> and then I, well, I will have people text me like, "Oh, where are you? We should hang out." I'm like, "Um, I'm home." <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, you don't try and find me. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> So I think disconnecting is also, I mean, it's, it can be hard for me, but I think it's also really important. So I try to take those breathers and, and also a support system is really important too. Mm-hmm. Got you. That is, oh my God, that you were literally speaking the truth because <laughs> I definitely have the same issue of just, you know, always wanting to be like, go, go, go and like doing stuff. And it's not really until recently that I'm like, you know, I'm just going to do nothing or just like mm-hmm. going out into the city and just like doing more things by myself. So yeah. it's like, I'm so active, but like, I don't necessarily have to consume the social or like emotional labor of like mm-hmm. entertaining other people and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So that definitely resonates for me a lot. So what's something that you wish more people knew about you? I guess that's where I'd show quote unquote like the different side of me on Instagram like so it's not a place where I talk about necessarily queerness and stuff it's not a place where I talk about necessarily serious topics but it's a place where I just like indulge in myself and indulge with experimenting with different types of fashion whether it be you know dressing up in a bow tie or just being like really feminine like wearing a crop top and like different color lipstick like I really like experimenting with this visual play of clothes makeup accessories is kind of like my I don't know if that's like if, mm-hmm. if it's like quote unquote that's a book that's kind of like like a way that I like to express myself excited, outside of like community organizing mm-hmm. I think it also I was talking to someone about this I think any Jamaicans listening will understand um but I think it's also very much rooted in Jamaican culture taking pride in how you look taking pride in your appearance is like really really important for um Jamaicans and you know we make sure whenever we go somewhere like you know we have arrived like we have attended you know we have attended so right I would say you know fashion and beauty is like this thing that's really important and I'm like a frugal person so you'll see me in CVS like getting that drugstore because and that's completely fine right <laughs> That is real, because, I mean, listen, this makeup out here is not playing games with these prices. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> like... Right. 
<laughs> it's funny because like you know i'll like look at like a youtube like makeup tutorial and like all the products like mm-hmm. 50 dollars like 67 and i'm just like oh <laughs> my god so there is nothing wrong mm-hmm. with some drugstore makeup listen yeah because but, then there will be the person who's like look what i did with this dollar tree make i mean i won't go to dollar tree i think that's a stretch but <laughs> <laughs> like i'll spend but a couple of <laughs> But she'll catch me in CVS or Walmart. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too funny. I can't. Oh, my God. Great. So it's like kind of on the same vein of reflection. So, you know, like based on who you were as a child, do you think the person that you are now, like the work you're doing and stuff like that is kind of in line with the person you thought you would be? I would, I would say no. I would say like, as I mentioned before, like as a child, just like being very sheltered like I didn't really understand like what the possibilities for me to be was so and I think you know other folks who you know have immigrant parents will understand there's kind of this pressure to we have now come to this country and you must now make a life that's better than you know what what your parents have you know that's the narrative that's told from the parents Mm -hmm. side and so it was like you should be like a lawyer a doctor something that's very lucrative something that we could not be when we were in our country Mm. So kind of like speaking about it from like the sacrifice that my parents made, I don't think I really thought about myself being a community organizer because that wasn't really an option that was presented to me. Mm-hmm. So no. <laughs> <laughs> Got you. That's interesting. And I guess like on a similar vein, like if you could ever go back in time and say something to like a younger version of yourself, what would that thing be? Um, I would tell my younger self that you are beautiful and to trust your instinct. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, as a child, like, Growing up, like, knowing that I was, I didn't really, like, you know, holding on my sexual identity until I was in college. But, you know, being a black man, being someone who had, like, struggled with my weight, I think it was, for me, you know, kind of hard to deal with, like, inner beauty and, like, what that meant for me. Which is why I think, going back to the whole, like, Instagram thing, you know, being able to accept myself and, like, my beauty for, like, who I am now and being able to feel beautiful because I wore different lipsticks today. I wore this green lipstick, or I wore this red one, or I wore this purple one. Mm-hmm. Finding confidence in that. I think I would tell myself that. I would, <laughs> I would tell my younger self that I am beautiful. And- oh, so beautiful. <laughs> I love that. Well, yes. Well, Tinikwa, you've honestly like blessed the show with some great <laughs> knowledge and input. I'm just curious. Do you have like any final words? So, yes, I did. <laughs> and I don't want to like throw jargon among folks. Um, oh, no, you're fine. You're totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But I did want to talk about bi women because I think that's very important. I think that's a community that hasn't really been talked about a lot. Talking about bi folks and bi women, you know, biphobia is something that's real. And bi folks are often told that their identity isn't, are they straight, are they gay? But it's like, no, I'm neither. I'm bisexual or, you know, my sexuality is good and I don't want to have to define it for you. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting because bi folks make up most of the LGBT population, but it's, you know, one of the most ignored, as well as like, People of color and trans folks are more likely to identify as bi, but we don't kind of talk about this intersectional identity. Mm-hmm. And we talk about how the environment is already unsafe and unsupportive for people who are lesbians and trans folks, but think about, you know, being bi and having folks reject this identity of yours. Mm-hmm. That that's something to think about. And, you know, some things that bi women face are more employment discrimination, as well as they face higher rates of intimate partner violence, as well as anxiety and mood disorders. So I think we need to think about how do we create environments of resiliency for bi women and bi folks in general that is affirming for them, considering, you know, how much of the population for poor folks they make up and how diverse this population is. Right. 
That's real. And like for both straight and gay identified folks alike, like what are some interpersonal everyday things we can do to better center bisexual people, especially bisexual women? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's important, like in terms of your support system and community, if someone comes out to you as bi, listening to that person and not and not asking them, well, are you sure? You know, reaffirming that person, making sure that they understand that there are resources out there. There's places like the Bisexual Resource Center that provides awesome material for bi folks. Mm-hmm. And as well as there's different support groups as well. So, you know, helping a person with finding different resources and reaffirming their identity is really important, as well as supporting and donating to organizations that support bi folks too. Mm-hmm. That's really important as well. Got you. Awesome. Well, that is real and i'm so (laughs) glad that you mentioned that because i think that's something that i mean a lot of the biophobia that i witnessed typically comes from folks who identify as gay so i think that like yeah it's it's interesting how you know oftentimes gay folks might be like oh like what like i can't you know be oppressive when it comes to like it's just a sexual orientation but like absolutely biphobia is a real real thing so i think that Mm -hmm. calling it out for what it is is important so i'm super glad that Mm -hmm. you brought that up but yeah so was there anything else that you want to share well i just want to thank you in general for giving me this voice and this platform like i don't think like even i was like even realizing things during this that i was like huh mm-hmm. what does that mean what would i tell my child self you know like things like that that i hadn't thought about and like gave me some internal reflecting to Oh my god, thank you. Of course, of course. Yeah. yeah, if anything, I should be the one thanking you for literally all this amazing <laughs> content and all this really great input, especially just for context. We're recording this interview a little bit later on in the day, like it's like after the official nine to five. So the fact that you're still willing to do this, I like very, very, very much appreciate it. So honestly, thank you so, so, so much. <laughs> Where can folks connect with you? Well, I actually have a website. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. So people can connect with me on my, I know I'm like 23 and I have a website. This right. is when, this is when like, you know, I was trying to be a self-starter and I was like, before I worked at Fedway and I was like, I need a job. And mm-hmm. I was like, I need to know, I need folks to know how awesome I am. So I created a website. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so my website is sneakleheinz.com because, you know, there is no other sneakleheinz. So, you know, just straight to the point at sneakleheinz. <laughs> <laughs> I also have that domain as well. And if you'd like to check out my fashion on Instagram, it's just at I also have that as well. Perfect. Awesome. <laughs> well, I'll be sure to include this information, you know, in the show notes and everything and make sure the folks know exactly where to go to learn more. But yeah, again, Tiniqua, thank you so, 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 so much. And yeah, honestly, this episode really gives folks a lot to think about and a lot of reflection to do. Mm -hmm. So I just really appreciate you sharing space and like allowing us to kind of learn more about you. So I really do appreciate it, honestly. Thank you. (laughs) Of course. I hope you all enjoyed Taniqua's brilliance this episode, and I definitely want to further put a pin in her piece about bisexuality and biphobia at the end of the episode, as that really can translate into some disparate health outcomes. I know unlearning stigma can be difficult, but it's all part of the journey to craft a better world. If you have any questions or thoughts on this episode, feel free to get in touch with us at definingequity at gmail.com. Next time, we'll be continuing our population series with a conversation around intersectional activism for LGBTQ people of color with a focus on South Asian communities. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.